This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I, a lot of times, go into a meeting and, and I'm the boss. I'm the one who uh, has to speak to the counterparty, let's say, of the other side. And men will not look at me in the eye. They will look at other men in the table, at the executives that are coming with me, who are working for me. And I decided that I would, instead of trying to change how they behave, I was going to take advantage of it. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. If you're enjoying our podcast, why not follow us on Instagram, where we post daily. You'll find us if you search for Don't Stop Us Now podcast. And now for this week's episode. Today, we have a truly global businesswoman on the show. Margarita Hadothia is Nicaraguan by birth, was educated in New York and lives in Costa Rica. She owns and runs Renaissance Holdings, which operates multiple businesses in locations as diverse as Central America, the Caribbean and Russia. And in fact, when we first met her, Gret, I was just blown away by her energy. I know we could have spoken to her on that call for hours, couldn't we? Oh, we so could. And actually, I just really wanted her to be my best friend. Well, and I really wanted to go and visit her straight away in Costa Rica. In fact, I still do. But back, should we go? <laughs> yeah, let's absolutely do that. But back to the episode. As a young housewife with no experience, Margarita went from overhearing a comment in her living room to being a CEO overnight. She took over a failing family-owned casual dining chain and totally blitzed it. This was the start of her prestigious career as an entrepreneur and leader, and over the years she's expanded her portfolio to also include real estate development, some retail, and asset management interests as well. In this episode, you'll hear her philosophy as a leader and how her purpose is to create what she calls happy jobs, how she takes advantage of the times when in meetings men won't look at her, her advice for women on how to negotiate a pay rise, and how civil unrest in Nicaragua has put her in the situation of making life or death decisions for her staff. Yeah, really fascinating stuff. So please, without further ado, enjoy this episode with the amazing global citizen and compassionate capitalist, Margarita Hadothia. Margarita, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you for having me on this program. Well, it's an absolute joy because we know that you are um, crazy busy in many, many different ways, and we'll hear about that a little bit later. Um, but we have been really so excited to be able to talk to you. 
And you're currently sitting, I think, in your home in Costa Rica. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. I'm sitting in Costa Rica in the mountains where I live and where I work as well. Uh, Costa Rica is a beautiful place that I hope everybody that is listening comes to visit one time. Absolutely. And uh, we can we can definitely say it's beautiful because I know I've been there anyway. Well, and it's on my list. And it's on your list. Yes. Exactly. And so, Margarita, we're really excited about this conversation because, you know, you are an, an incredible businesswoman. You have an interests in real estate and food franchises and, and a number of other areas. But if you were to summarize what you actually do in a few sentences for our listeners, how would you summarize yourself? I think my life goals and my life purpose is the same as my career goals. I create happy jobs. For a job to be happy, it has to be sustainable, profitable, rewarding in many ways. So that's what I do. In a nutshell, I I live and work to create happy jobs. What an amazing thing. I, I don't think I've ever heard that answer, that you, you live to create happy jobs. And what does, what does happy jobs mean? When the life purpose and the values and the spiritual values and the intellectual values are aligned with one's own desires and abilities, then you have this coherence of self and purpose that makes a job just amazing. In fact, it makes it so that it doesn't feel like a job. I think any kind of job, whether it's routine, industrial job, or a psychological or creative job, if the person enjoys what they're doing, I'm sure it has to be because their life goals and values are aligned with what they're doing. Like, how does that work, though, Margarita, for, say, a dishwasher in one of your restaurants? I can see how he can identify, he or she could identify with broader values of the business. But, you know, some people might be kind of going, really? Even the very bottom of the rung can feel that sort of alignment and coherence if they're doing something as menial as washing dishes? Yeah, well, actually, I'm glad you asked about that example because I actually have a lot of dishwashers in my companies because we do restaurants. You know, dishwashing can be a very menial and tedious job. It's definitely going to be physically tiring. It always is. Most jobs can have a physical side of it. But if you know what part of a whole job you're doing, if you think, if you only remember or imagine you're a dishwasher, you're washing dishes, I have to wash a thousand dishes today, it's very different than if you know you are being part of the development, not only of your family, but of a group of families that you are helping the country grow, that you are also part of an organization that has a philanthropic initiative to it where every single member of the organization does philanthropy too, including the dishwasher. So it makes a very big difference. We have a program in uh, all our companies, the title varies from company to company depending on the nature of it. But for the restaurants, see, if we continue with the example of the dishwasher, we have a program called Adopt a Restaurant where everybody in the central office has to go one time per month to do a job in the restaurant. So there may be a very high executive or a general manager. We all have to come in and try being for half a day. The program lasts half a day. We have to try being a security guard, a dishwasher, a fryer, a a waiter, a cashier, because it's the only way that we can actually serve, you know, those 
around us in the workplace if we know what everybody is doing. So we all know what it feels like to be a dishwasher. God, I love that. You know, I know we could talk about this for hours and hours because I know how passionate you are about it. But when you look back at your childhood, why has this become so important to you, this values-based piece? I grew up in Nicaragua. I was born there. And uh, Nicaragua is one of the countries that has the one of the biggest income inequalities in the world. When you live where the majority of the population is very poor, now it's only 8% of the population that is middle class. That's how low it is. Gosh. And there's a lot of the majority of the population, great majority lives with under $12 a week. So it's very, very sad. And um, when you grow up like that and you have had a chance to share and, and feel, you know, the needs of the people, I think um, it becomes natural. My parents, when I was little, they had a farm. They took us to the farm and I would play around with the kids of the farm workers. It was very sad at the end of the day when they would have to go to their own home and their home was tiny and I had to go to mine and mine was bigger. And then you don't understand as a child why if you play with equal rules and with equal enthusiasm, at the end of the day, you have to have different circumstances. So I think um, that grew, you know, this seed that it's inequality is not correct. And there are things one can do about them. So yeah. I intend to, I think I have, and I want to dedicate my life to making sure it the gap narrows as much as is possible. Yeah, that's incredible. So you grew up in this sort of more privileged lifestyle and and you could see the perspective of people that were growing up with nothing. But I know that, you know, it hasn't always been easy. You got married, I think, when you were very young. I think it was, did you say it was 16? I dated at 16 and married at 18. Uh, and it was ironic because I was what would have been described as a nerd. I was always studying and, you know, making sure I got very good grades. And I would always say that I would get married until after I got my PhD. But life has a way of throwing you cards, you know, and my husband came around when I was 16 and I fell in love with his intellect and his views on the world. And so, you know, you change, I guess, when when circumstances change, I ended up getting married really young. I had started college at 16. So I transferred from Duke University to Columbia University in New York, where my husband was working and graduated there. And how and when did you get into the business world? I started the business world when my youngest child was a baby. My husband had invested in different businesses with family members. These businesses were going sour. I remember hearing one time a discussion in the living room in my house. And my husband was saying to his relatives, no more. I'm not putting in one more penny of investment into these. You know, you're going to close down the business, let them go broke, but no more. These businesses uh, were casual dinings and fast food restaurants. And I, so I said, uh, what's going on? And they explained. And I said, well, why don't you let me try it for a year? They looked at me like, what do you know about restaurants? And I said, nothing. But it seems like you don't either, <laughs> because otherwise you wouldn't be going broke. And uh, so <laughs> I got a chance to try for a year. And that was then. And it was a very, very tiny company. And I was able to turn it around with no other skills than the natural skills you are giving as a woman to, I think, to be a homemaker. People laugh when I use this example, but we come prepared, you know, to literally 
cook the pot with one hand, hold the baby on the other, hold the phone on the ear, and direct with our eyesight. This multitasking ability that you know we women have, I think it's the same that we need to administer jobs and to administer people. So I use my just my woman intuition to to grow the business. Amazing. And for our listeners and for context, sort of, so was the, you were in New York and was the business, was it one of the TGI Fridays franchises and where was it uh, or where were the businesses? By then we had already moved from New York okay. to Costa Rica where yeah. I live. So this story of the living room happened in Costa Rica and the businesses were in different places in Central America and the Caribbean. Specifically, it was KFC and TGI Fridays in the Dominican Republic. We also had Pizza Hut on Fridays in Nicaragua and some in Costa Rica. Those were the places. So I started supposedly playing and trying it out for a little while and it turned out to be, you know, a life career. What's the sort of spread of the portfolio of business interests you have these days? It's uh, spreading through four different areas, I would say. There's uh, the real estate component. There is the food service component, which is fast food and casual dining. There is a small retail clothing retail operation, and then there's a financial investment, asset management side. And those would be the four categories, I would say. How do you think about what's common with those businesses and those interests? What are your sort of guiding principles before you get involved with those different areas? I think that the common thread of all of them is people. You know, we are people managing people, doing services and products for people. And if you keep this humanity perspective, this intuition that we women masterfully have, it is very easy to see. You know, whenever there's a doubt, do I go left or right? If you always think, you know, what do people want? What do people usually do? What do people prioritize when they're going to spend? Usually that common sense is the same sense that goes into businesses. A lot of times people make, you know, business people, men or women make mistakes because they try to create a totally different category, a totally different thing. And, and there is obviously room for innovation. But in general, even the most revolutionary innovation takes into account what people want, what people need, what people are doing. So I think that's the main thread is keeping in mind humanity, human nature, uh, what do human nature does, wants, aspire, what are we afraid of? Those are the holes where you can serve or create products. It's all sounding like it's been incredibly successful, but I'm sure that's not always the case, Margarita. What would be an example of one of the toughest bad times or failures you've had in um, one of the businesses to date and how did you get through it? We've had a lot of times where we opened a unit in a place that we did all the studies and we thought that was a, going to be a very successful venue. But in hindsight, you just, you, you realize that, yeah, the, the place was fine and the purchasing power was fine, but the corner shouldn't have been the right corner, it should have been the left corner because it's not on the way home or it's not where the traffic is or the entrance. Uh, I've had a lot of those. You know, it's very humbling to know that you did all the due diligence you thought and, and then there's a mistake. Also, when you deal with people and, um, I have, a lot of employees under the companies, it's over 2,000 employees if you add them up. And indirectly, you know, we serve more than 5,000 people with indirect jobs. So whenever there's people, there's always human conflict. So we have been, we've also had different types of 
you know, labor lawsuits of uh, when you catch somebody who is stealing, you know, they always try to find a way to sue the company. Those are very tough because when you think you are doing these people-centric companies and you have employees that are not doing the things correctly and they sue you, those that's kind of painful. And how do you personally get through those situations, Margarita? Because I, you know, I can hear that you you really believe, you know, very strongly in humans and treating people really well. So it must really hurt when somebody breaks your loyalty. How do you cope mentally with that? There's only two ways of seeing humanity. You either believe humanity is mostly good or you believe that humanity is mostly bad. And uh, there are people who in general think if they can hurt you, they will. The world is brutish, nasty, short, you know, you got to protect yourself. Or you can believe that in every human being, regardless of how ill or angry or upset they look on the outside, there's a treasure inside to be found. So I believe I'm of the latter. I believe that every human being has a treasure inside that sometimes is covered up by a lot of shells or calluses that life has given them. It could even be a genetic predisposition. And I think it's the role of leaders to have a forever and never-ending energy to find that treasure. Your focus on values, especially values such as patience and honesty and seeing the humanity in people, how much of that do you think is because you're a woman and you can see the value and the power of those more than perhaps a male leader could? I think it's a trait that has been more common in women, but you see in a lot of men as well. I think now that men are allowed to express their full potential as well as we are, you can also see the same type of leadership in men. I think it's um, taking a human perspective to life and to and to action. It's really not being masculine or feminine, it's being human. So I expect a woman to also be tough and, and, and aggressive, as well as, as gentle and loving, and the same for a man. So I think if we were able to put away the feminist, masculine, or macho titles and use the human or humanistic titles, we would all be doing a better job. For example, there is something that I think uh, where women, we still are lagging behind in general, and that is in the relationship women have with money. You know, men have a very easy relationship with money in general. They don't see it as anything bad of speaking about money, speaking about earning or making more or being aggressive about negotiations. Women and women executives, you can see them that they, if they are negotiating on behalf of the company, they are very good negotiators. But if they are ne- negotiating on behalf of their own retribution or earnings or salary or remuneration, they are not as aggressive. Mm-hmm. And that is something that um, I notice time and again when I interview men and women. You can offer a man a salary. doesn't matter how much you offer. And they will always say it's too little. And very often women will say, okay, great. When do I start? Rather than saying the same. Because when you're trying to get a salary, you want to get as much salary as you possibly can. So I think that is something that um, where it's more of a training than an innate situation, but I think we need to teach our little girls to have an easy relationship with money and power. Just like we need to teach our little boys to have an easy relationship with love and feelings. Pay is one of those things that, as you said, women 
struggle with in terms of negotiating. And you're in a really interesting position because you're the head of a company and you've got all these, or companies, sorry, and you've got all of these women working for you. If you could give them some advice about what you would want to see them doing differently around negotiating for pay, what practical advice would you give? Do your homework. Look both at your performance and be cold about reviewing your own performance because we tend to sweeten up our own actions and we tend to see ourselves better than probably other people would see us. Hopefully, hopefully we're, we don't go the insecure route, but try and ask, ask your friends, what kind of a job do you think I did? What do you think is my performance like before the interview? And also find out about job salaries so that you can demand the same. And then uh, as second nature, whenever they tell you they're going to pay you X, it doesn't matter if it's triple what you were expecting, still learn to say, oh, it's less than I was expecting. I'm going to have to think about it because you never know how much more you can get. We need to become and train our little girls to be at ease with power, at ease with money, at ease with numbers, at ease with negotiation and, and at ease with forcefulness in substance, not losing our femininity in in how we do things. Fantastic advice, Margarita. Really fantastic. You know, if we were getting really practical here, and you just have been incredibly practical, but many women, particularly where you're based in, in Latin America, but equally in you know all parts of the world, find themselves in a room as the only woman. What again is your advice when you find yourself in that situation as the only woman in the room? I have had, just like a lot of women, had to deal with times when they call you in the middle of a negotiation, sweetie, darling, or things like that, which are completely inappropriate. But you have to make a quick choice. At that moment, do you decide on putting the man on his place and then you'll have a detriment to that negotiation or you focus on the negotiation today and later on decide whether that's the man you want to educate or whether it's the ones that are maybe under your care or under your watch or your kids or your relatives. So I think choosing our battles is very important and uh, having a thick skin is another. I, a lot of times, go into a meeting and, and I'm the boss. I'm the one who uh, has to speak to the counterparty, let's say, of the other side. And men will not look at me in the eye. They will look at other men in the table, at the executives that are coming with me, who are working for me. And I decided that I would, instead of trying to change how they behave, I was going to take advantage of it. When they stop looking at you, you're actually free to start gazing at everybody and understand their body movements, their facial features, listening to what they're saying, and then... You can also negotiate and win from behind, even if you are the number one person, because um, your executives are as important as you are. I want to think about sort of the future of your businesses now. So much is written about disruption and digital, and certainly when it comes to the fast food restaurants and all the restaurants like TGI Fridays and even real estate to some extent, one could sort of be forgiven for calling them uh, sort of old world businesses. How do you go about dealing with that 
particularly when it comes to, you know, recruiting talent, but also then thinking about how you can future-proof these businesses? Yeah, I think the revolution is going to come more for some of the industries than others. So real estate, I think, especially in the more developed countries, is going to have a very strong refocus as people uh, live in more condensed urban areas and as we have less cars. There's definitely going to be a lot of real estate that is used for parking lots and roads that is going to be eventually freed and uh, available for redevelopment and reusage. And also as the world demands a more environment-friendly development and uh, lifestyles, I think we're also going to be seeing a lot of challenges and an improvement in the way we construct and live and develop uh, in real estate. So I think that industry is going to see a lot more revolution. The restaurant industry, I think the revolution that we're going to see is the same as we're looking at for the older service industries. People are being displaced by machines. There are a lot more things that machines can do that men and, and women and humans are not going to be needed to do or are going to be too expensive for doing. So we, we are going to f- have a societal challenge in how do we deal with people who become displaced by technology. That being said, as an investor, it's a good place to be because people always need to eat. If you take a cold, let's say, answer to your question, as an investor in, in the restaurant industry, it's actually going to, going to become more profitable because as you lessen the costs of things, you know, obviously sales prices will also change, but it can actually become an industry that becomes quite a profitable and attractive industry. People need to continue eating unless, you know, unless and until we are able to print 3D over, you know, some kind of a wave their food in people's homes, that's an area that will continue to to be necessary. So they're very different answers to my different to my different businesses. I know that you've been going through a very big challenge recently with what's happening in Nicaragua, which I'll let you explain just a little bit for our listeners in a moment. But how have you managed your emotions and your fears and anxieties in this situation? So Nicaragua right now is uh, undergoing a lot of violence and civil unrest. People have been literally killing each other on the streets. We have a dictatorial government and uh, Nicaragua is one of the most unequal places um, in the world. So people have been fighting over the rights to express and for institutionality and democracy. So we've had to, the companies that I operate there are Pizza Hut and TJ Fridays. We have 650 employees there who depend on these jobs staying open and selling. So for the last two months, we've had a less than 50% of the sales because many of the stores have to be closed because there is literally fire and fighting happening right outside its doors. My job right now is to, as a, as a businesswoman, is to keep these companies going so that I do not let off anybody, lay off anyone. If I do, what will happen is that they will literally starve because there is no job creation right now happening in the country and there are no philanthropic organizations that will feed people who don't have a job. So it's very important to keep the income coming. So we work right now. My job has turned from being, you know, a business leader focusing on the profit to almost being like a war manager where I am shifting constantly the logistics of where 
the delivery zones are, you know, if zone B and C are under fire, well, you deliver from zone E and, and F, even if it takes you a little bit longer. So it, it's very different. It's pretty challenging because every time I decide to cover a delivery zone, you're not only sending pizzas to the neighborhood, you're sending a human being on a motorcycle who can be stopped and who could be shot on the way to deliver a pizza. Yeah, absolutely amazing. What an experience you're going through. Margarita, I want to sort of shift gears here now and, and ask you to sort of look back a little bit and ask you, what would you tell your 30-year-old self if you could today? I would um, probably tell her to pay more time to the present moment and less time to either past grudges or future anxiety or anticipation or preparedness. I think uh, dwelling on the present is where life is. I mean, life happens right now. It didn't happen one hour ago and it won't, you know, it hasn't come, you know, an hour from now. As we start to wrap up, I'm really curious because you've achieved so much uh, in your life so far, but I feel like there's just so much more to come. So what's next for Margarita in the next sort of five, 10 years? I think uh, what's next is uh, what I began as a child. I wish for more democratic, more equality of opportunity world, especially my own world. My, my country of Nicaragua needs change. And uh, I have lived my businesswoman life trying to create jobs where democracy is practiced in the private enterprise. I think because we are awake, most of the time that we are awake in life, we spend it in the, in the job. You know, when you look at the 24 hours that a, a day has and we sleep hopefully eight and then we travel to and from work another two, most of our conscious life is spent on the jobs. So I have tried to create a, this happy, profitable jobs where democracy is practiced, where the hierarchy is not pyramidal, but more flattened, more horizontal, where everybody has a say. And I think I would like to continue being a businesswoman and continue creating jobs where democracy and equality and freedom of speech is practiced and um, create more and more of those. And hopefully see that even in a bigger scale. My country right now is undergoing literally a revolution. I am sure we're going to have a change of government. And uh, so I intend to support a leadership that, that is in line with those values. Well, Margarita, thank you so much for making the time. Knowing your schedule and, and flying around, whether it's to Nicaragua or back to your home base in Costa Rica or off to the US or other countries, we really appreciate this time you've made for us today. It's been fascinating and thank you so much and stay safe. Thank you very much. Thank you everybody for listening and let's make this world a better place for men, women and for everybody. Hear, hear. Isn't Margarita just so powerful and 
passionate as a leader. And I just love that she doesn't lose sight of the fact that it's about improving everyone's lives. Yeah, really fantastic. And I'd love to be in the room with Margarita when it's full of old school men refusing to look her in the eye or negotiate with her, wouldn't you? Yeah, I bet those macho men don't know what's coming. And it's so clever of her to flip the whole scenario and find ways to take advantage of the fact that they're not looking at her by studying their body language and facial expressions. So we loved that episode and we hope you did too. Coming up, our world tour continues and we move from Costa Rica to Japan, where we'll meet the unique entrepreneur, Aya Aso. And whilst we're thinking ahead, please let us know if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in one of our future how-to episodes. Thanks so much for joining us and see you here, same place, in two weeks. Ciao for now. 